Hey, Joseph Fink here. A few months ago, we shared the first episode of my new podcast, I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. It was, I think, a very good episode, but it was also one where we were figuring a lot of stuff out, both within how we were doing the conversation and in how we edited it. And so I wanted to check in with you here with episode 10 of our podcast, our most recent episode, and one that I think better represents where this show ended up going. Enjoy. <laughs> This is the notebook that I took to uh, Ireland on the... I think it was before Tallahassee was out, but the first time that we went over, Peter and I went over there. And then here's the original lyric to Riches and Wonders. Oh, wow. It has... I mean, it, seriously, this is what's really wild about some of the songs from Always Texas. I don't think there's a pre- previous draft of that. I think that's the amount of correction that went into it. You've got one line... No, Two. one line crossed out and then, like, one word crossed yeah. out. Invent has been changed to I learned because I think I noticed I was going to need invent somewhere else. So there's that. And there's also the fact that though now I'm superstitious about pen colors and I won't write in blue or red. I will only write in black ink. Interesting. And this, it was pretty clear back then. I was like, I don't care. (laughs) Oh, wait. No, there must have been a previous draft. You know how you can tell? I am healthy. I am whole, et cetera. (laughs) So, So there must have been a previous draft somewhere else. Uh, now there's a song that I never got written called You and Your Latin Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, I think this notebook went through a bunch of different iterations. Like it was at one point, yeah, then it becomes a, te- uh, 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 then it becomes a Sunset Tree notebook. It went through like, this one was around for four albums and there's still a lot of blank paper in it. It feels weird. If I take one of these old notebooks and start writing new songs in it, <laughs> it feels bizarre, even though it's just paper. <laughs> I hate writing longhand, and so all of my stuff, I have, like, all of my old stuff, It you can tell it's the old stuff because it's in WordPerfect rather than Word. Wow. My so I have, like, folders uh. of WordPerfect files. I learned how to type at 7, so basically I have oh, been, wow, really? as long as I've been writing, I've been writing on a computer, and it just, that's the only way I'm comfortable doing it. I learned how to type at 12 in summer school in Portland, and it became the only way I wrote prose. And to this day, I will very seldom write prose, but songs have always been long. I can't, I can't imagine writing a song lyric on on the laptop. It's like that's I t- that's when I'm typing it up so that I'll be able to read it, mm. you know, when I print it out. But for the most part, there's whole takes of my of my songs where it's like, this is a good take. Oops, I don't know what that says. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Mavis Beacon teaches the Mountain Goats, the podcast <laughs> about typing and the Mountain Goats. I'm Joseph Fink, and I only listen to the Mountain Goats. This is the show where I talk with John Darneal, singer and songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats, about music, art, life, and anything else that comes up. This season we are going song by song through John's 2002 album, All Hail West Texas. Today's song is Jeff Davis County Blues, which, as you'll hear, is a song with a particular meaning to my life. Later, we will hear a cover of the song recorded just for this podcast by Julian Coster. But first, this episode was a tough one. It would have been tough even without the subject matter, which gets a little heavy, because this was the last episode recorded on my first trip down to Durham. We had spent three solid days sitting in John's basement recording. Imagine us, John cross-legged on an old mattress, me sitting in a small plastic folding chair. Outside, the sky broils. Inside, we sweat. And we talk. We're going to talk this episode about Jeff Davis County Blues. Jeff Davis County Blues, which is also Jefferson Davis County, I think. Yeah, it's uh, 
the hyperbole that people often criticize younger people for engaging of calling everything the best. Mm-hmm. Lots of things are the best. Yeah. Right. It's like I don't. It's the look, best for that moment. Yeah, and it's the best in some uh, in some way that the other thing isn't the best. So it's always hard to pick a very favorite one. But I've been saying Riches and Wonders. You know, that's maybe the best written song on the album as mm-hmm. far as the lyric goes. It's really you know, it's very measured. But Jeff Davis, I think it was like it, it's a step up. Jeff Davis County Blues has a kind of a maturity to the to the to the resolve where I'm not asking for attention. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, it's like, whereas the best, the best ever does metal band in Denton pretty much punches you in the nose telling you, I bet you can't not pay attention to a guy yelling, hail Satan. Mm-hmm. Even if you missed the whole story I told, I bet you're going to hear me now. Right. And that's, that's punk energy, which I like. And, you know, but I also am more drawn to in part because my natural tendency is to jump up and down and yell and I enjoy it, you know, but I'm always wanting to try and find other ways to, you know, to leave an impression. Yeah. Uh, th- this has, uh, similar to Riches and Wonders, it has an over a minute, over a minute long instrumental outro. Yeah. We, when I talk about maturity in songwriting, I consider like the ability for the singer to shut up and stay out of the way of some nice chords. Mm-hmm. That to me is maturity, right? That's uh, whereas I didn't used to have that because I couldn't play the chords that nice, you know? And, uh, and there's an A7 in here, an A minor seven that keeps coming in. I, I'm pretty sure this is the first song I ever wrote that had an A minor seven in it. And, uh, and it's nice. It deserves to have some space. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the idea of someone being like, listen to this A minor seven. Here it is. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting because this song really gets So this is maybe the most specific to, you said that, that this album came out of driving through West Texas. Yeah. yeah. And this well, is, maybe the most specific to driving through West Texas to the point where it's basically giving directions. Yeah, no, it's a highway map. It, uh, it, it, it's a drive you can go do if you if you so desire. So there's a, uh, someone has created a Google map. Um, <laughs> shout out to that person. Thanks for doing that because I you looked person. at it. Um, you have a name, presumably. Um, <laughs> and it's really interesting. They, they mapped out on Google um, this route. Yeah. And what's fascinating is it's a super long route and it feels long when you're saying it in the song and it feels long... I think it is a lot of hours, but it's what you're saying about West Texas. It is when you see it against the state of Texas, yeah, this entire nothing. song is <laughs> maybe 5% of the, the width of the state. Yeah, no, you're not even, you can drive, you could do this thing and it would take you a while and you wouldn't have seen much of Texas. <laughs> so the entire drive, according to this Google map that, um, who created it? Oh, sorry, I already clicked away. Oh, Thank yeah. you again, though. Um, Thank you, person doomed <laughs> it, to anonymity. It is a five-hour drive. Here is what it looks like against the state of Texas. Yeah, it's, so it's just basically it's a very small upside-down V. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of its uh, where's the where's the border? Oh, it's right there. Yeah. Yeah, you don't go far into New Mexico on this drive. You just go very briefly into it. Uh, let me hit back. So Zachary Eldridge is our dude. Thank you, Zachary Eldridge. Zach, we appreciate it. What's up? So it's a five-hour drive is how long it would take to do once. But uh, but he turns around, right? He he. It would take. There's, there's a, probably an extra twenty minutes for the, the turnaround because he's gonna keep going. Yeah. Uh, and he decides to go to Midland. But yeah, there's something about that that impression that going through Texas leaves on you. It's like you go. It's a place that that can teach you about your own ignorance because a lot of people, especially people who've never been to the South at all. They think they know something about Texas, and they may know something about Texas, but there's a lot of Texas to know, and that's instructive, right? Because that's true of every place. Texas happens to be a good place to learn it, you know? It's like no matter what you think you know about 
And let's take a place that people have a lot of stereotypes about, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, right? Uh, which became a popular place to move to circa 2000-ish, I right? spent I spent five years living in Williamsburg. Yeah, and, 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 you know, there were probably a lot of people your age who had moved there around the same time, and it was exciting, and now people dismiss it in a in a way that everybody, absolutely everybody has taken part in, in dismissing Williamsburg as Hipsterville or whatever, but there's a lot to know about Williamsburg, actually. We were, we took a, a, we had a bad Uber driver, no, a Lyft driver, um, bad Lyft driver through there a couple weeks ago or something. I saw all kinds of blocks I had never walked down at all because there's no clubs there and there's no restaurants that I know there. And uh, and I was seeing all kinds of people, mainly Hasidim, right, um, that I'd never see. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you go south from Williamsburg, yeah. It's, yeah. Well, you, that's Williamsburg, too. <laughs> yeah, you get into the neighborhoods where there are no signs in English. Yeah. It's all in Yiddish. I, I, the thing is, I think I told you, if I didn't tell you, one thing I almost did when I was studying Hebrew uh, at uh, at Pomona uh, when I was going to Pittsburgh, but I was studying Hebrew and I was in classical studies and I was really getting pretty into, you know, tradition of, of uh, Hebrew scholarship and stuff. I was looking at the postings for summer stuff, and there was a, a Yiddish library thing in, I want to say it was Massachusetts, where they had like this vast repository of Yiddish books that needed to be cataloged. Mm-hmm. Right? And they said it was a great gig. The one thing is there's no air conditioning in the warehouse where you're going to do this, and it's July. Right? Oh, God. And I knew I had never spent any time on the East Coast, and I was like, I bet it's unlivable among all those books. So I didn't apply for the, <laughs> for the, for the Yiddish book scholarship. I don't think if I did, I didn't get it, but I sort of, you know, when I was thinking about doing it, I looked up and the whole tradition of Yiddish literature is so, I mean, like it's something you would feel utterly justified in going, that's going to be my area. That's all I'm going to study, you know? And so, so yeah, when I go through that part of Williamsburg, I just, I have this, I'm dazzled. I know so little, I'm ignorant, you know? And, uh, and there's a sort of, for me, anything I'm ignorant of, I grow intensely curious about. Yeah, I have, I think, a different reaction to the Hasid community. Well, yeah, of course. Because, yeah, as a as a, like a reformed Jew and like a liberal Jew, to me, Hasids make me kind of angry. Sure, but remember also the tradition that they come out of, whether whatever they are in practice, it's an ecstatic tradition. Right. Well, yeah, they, a, they were the radical yeah. ones, but they were the radical ones in the mid nineteenth yeah, century. Long time ago. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, it's it's a thing. It's a thing where it's like I get to hate the Hasids because <laughs> it's, I'm not hating them because they're Jewish. Right. I'm hating them because of the way they treat women and the way they treat other people, and it's the sibling. Yeah, I, I only think of them in, in, in scriptural terms, not cultural terms. <laughs> yeah, it's the sibling think, anger that like you get to have because you're close to them in some way. Yeah. No, I, I mean, like you know. At core, here's the thing. I saw Fiddler on the Roof when I was when I was five, and to this day, I identify uh, with with Reb Tevye. It's like I I want when he when he waxes about how great it would be to just read scripture all day. He doesn't even mean it. Right? He says that, but he uh-huh. actually likes his life the way it is, you know. Uh, but I, I I'm the same way. I think, oh, what, what if I was a guy, <laughs> just just reading the Bible all day? That would be great. It'd be great if you were a guy. Because <laughs> if you're a woman, uh, yes, you don't get true. to do shit in those communities. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so I wanted to talk, you know, our, the last episode we talked about how places... You want to cut all of that unless we want to get... <laughs> I mean, I am completely You're comfortable totally with to go on, my right? dislike of Hasids. Because, again, it has nothing to do with the fact that they're Jewish. Yeah, no, totally. It has to do I with mean, the fact that I'm Jewish. Yeah, that's it's a good line. <laughs> um, yeah, the... Uh, so we last, uh, this last episode we talked about how places can become tied up in who you were when you yeah, went yeah. to those places. And I... it. 
it's exactly the same with songs. And yeah. this is a song that just happened to get tangled up in a point in my life. Right. Um, and you were in New York. I was in New York. So so we've talked about this, that um, when the Mountain Goats went from a band I liked to a band that was kind of tied into my life was when my father died. Oh, yeah. It was in 2011. Right. Um, he had had a heart condition for seven years or so beforehand. We we knew he was going to die. Um, we just didn't know when. And so it was, it was this very long, drawn-out process. I went through, like, summers where I couldn't function because of the anxiety. Um, Man. And I, then, I know what you mean. It's the thing, when you summarize it in that one sentence, it's easy to just walk right past that. Yep. You know, I went through a period where I was too anxious to really move. You know, anyway, and it's like, and when, I always want to respect those moments when you pass them and go like, yeah, no, I hear you. It's like when I talk about my crying well awake period, that was real. That was like, yeah, you know, I would try and keep it together until my wife left for work just to not bum her out, you know, and then I would go. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the things that really bonded my wife and I powerfully is she, she and I started dating the summer I stopped functioning because of anxiety. Wow. She started dating me like right before that happened. So it was this great thing where she started dating me and then I stopped functioning. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Good new boyfriend. So around my wrist, I have a piece of Baker string. Right. She has one too. We have friendship bracelets. Awesome. I don't actually wear a wedding ring because I really hate wearing jewelry. It bothers yeah. me. But I've I've worn this Baker string or we, we switch it out about once every six months. Oh, wow. For how long have Megan and I been together? Uh, almost eight years. Over eight years. Oh, God. Um, and so, because um, it was 2009, yeah, eight years. So uh, it was really early on, and I was living in New York. She was living in New Jersey, and I had this point where I couldn't get out of bed. I was so anxious. No, and she that's... came, and she brought me chocolate-covered strawberries in a bakery box. And then um, we made friendship bracelets from the bakery string around the bakery box. Right. And then I've worn this around my wrist ever since to that remind me of that moment. Um Anyway, so that that yeah, that summer it was an interesting one because yeah, I couldn't function, but that was also the start of our relationship. And so, so, do you now when you like if you get if anxiety starts to settle in and you feel like maybe your functionality is decreasing, you go something good's about to happen. <laughs> I've had so I had that wave, and then I had another wave after my father died, um, where again I couldn't function for a little bit, and then I started writing Night Vale. And since Night Vale has started, a lot of my anxiety has not gone away at all, but it has become extremely manageable because Knock I just wood. I just started putting all of my anxiety into Night Vale. Like Night Vale <laughs> is a very all of the stuff about death and about yeah. uncertainty. That's all me just take, taking all the anxiety that was building up and putting it into this work and spinning straw into so gold. So it didn't have yeah. to live inside of me anymore. Yeah, no, that's that's the lead into gold phenomenon. Is that uh, that's what that is. It's like it's it's. Uh, I, I've talked with my therapist about it, how you know, some of these songs where you go, well, that was a terrible thing to have lived through, but look what came out of that. That's nice, you know. Yeah. So, my father. So he he would he had a a relatively minor surgery, um, and it went completely wrong. I'm sorry. And he died, but then came back, kind of thing, where they they got him out and they drove him to Cedar Sinai. Um, and so I flew back from New York and we just spent a week with him at Cedar sinai in the, um, the ICU. Uh, it's always really weird because we've done, Nightville's done a bunch of stuff at the Largo, which is literally around the corner from Cedar sinai And Largo is a very exciting place. It's, you know, I've had a lot of really amazing career moments. Some of the first Nightville shows were at the Largo and it is literally around the corner from the room that my father died in. Man. Um, 
so we had this week with him, and I, I really take that as a gift in that he very easily could have died that first night. Instead, we had this week in which we could say goodbye. Um, we didn't know necessarily we were saying goodbye. We thought he was going to get a heart transplant, um, and then it just didn't happen. But we spent that week singing because, again, he was a musician, and we had always sung together as a family. And we sung a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, we sung a lot of the stuff. You know, he, he was very into a lot of different music. Who is the guy, I cannot believe I've forgotten his name, uh, a Dying Cubs fan's last request? Oh, I don't know that guy's name. Uh, that uh, I know I know the song, oh, but no, nobody remembers that guy's name. Come on. <laughs> I that's not even my favorite song by him. He was great. Uh, Steve Goodman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he wrote all sorts of great stuff. But he's a fairly, he's not that well known. <laughs> yeah, my dad really liked him. So I, I, I listened to a lot of his stuff. So, uh, we sang his stuff, but we also sang, you know, we sang this year and we sang, I, I told, I was telling you this a couple of days ago, we sang Never Quite Free. Yeah. But I, without telling him, rewrote the end of the verses right. to make them happy because I wasn't, I needed him to be singing a happy song. <laughs> um, and it, it's just, you know, it just became tied to, that music came tied to that moment. Um, which Craig Finn has that line, certain songs get scratched into our soul. Yeah, so. exactly. It's, it has, and it has nothing to do necessarily, again, Never Quite Free had nothing to do with that moment. Yeah. But it became a very different meaning. Very soon after that, so I, I came back to New York I was trying to figure things out. Six months later, I would start writing Night Vale, which it wasn't until years later that I realized that was in direct reaction to the grief. Like that was me wow. processing grief. It didn't occur to me until probably three years after it started. It's an insightful thing about grief that it's weird. Yeah. You know, it's like not, that's not the first thing people say about it. Yeah. It's, you don't even know what you're, I don't think you realize how you're processing it until you have a lot of distance to see yeah. what you were doing. I went, you played Music Hall of Williamsburg. And I went to see it. I actually didn't know. I'm not 100 percent sure why I didn't know it. I didn't know that song that well. Right. Um, it's just not a song I listened to much. And you were playing it, and I did it solo. It was in the middle of the set. That sounds right. I remember it being solo. Uh, so you started playing Jeff Davis County Blues, and you got to the line about old Sunset magazines, old issues of Sunset magazines. Yes. And my dad was an avid subscriber to Sunset oh, magazine. Oh wow. And there was always it was always around a room. When I was flying back to New York, you know, we were there for the funeral and all of that. It happens pretty quickly when you're Jewish. Um, you do kind of do it right away. So we stayed for the funeral, and then I was just grabbing some stuff to read on the plane. So I just grabbed a couple issues of Sunset Magazine, oh, wow. and I opened up. My dad was an avid gardener. He he gardened all the time. We had a, a fairly complex garden, and so he would, and he worked from home, so he'd spend a lot of his day doing that. And all through that, it was the latest issue of Sunset Magazine, and it came out the month he died. And there was all these notes he had written about wow. gardening ideas he wanted to try. They, you know, he had like circled um, a type of planting method that he wanted to try out. And there was all this stuff, this right. handwriting from my dad in this issue of Sunset Magazine. So you had this song that, was a, that brought up these old issues of Sunset Magazine and this idea of, of dreaming of home. Yeah, and well, and different ideas of home. Yeah, and it became a song about my dad, and so it's this weird thing Amazing. where forever this will be a song about my dad, even though nothing in the lyrics supports that. It's not a song about someone missing somebody who died, I don't think, and it's mm. not a it's not a song about grief necessarily, but it it is a hundred percent those things for me. There's a big loss in that song, though. It's one of, like I say, it's one of the more mature songs in part because it doesn't need an object of romantic affection or even, even a definable object. It's like, it's, it's actually focusing on the feeling. Most of us don't focus on feelings at that level very often. 
mm-hmm. when we feel, if I feel, if I, you say you're angry, I might ask you who you're angry at. Well, that's kind of a very dim understanding of anger. You know, and sure, you're angry at people or, or injustice or whatever, you know, but to sit with the anger and, and, and have that be the feeling instead of be focused on it, that's where the song is at, but with, with, with absence and grief. You know, he, he's looking at something, mm-hmm. some pictures, you know. Well, it doesn't really matter what's in the pictures. We know that they're pictures of something. Yeah. And that they're pictures of something means that whatever's on them, you're not with that right now. Right. And yeah. so, so it's a, it's a, it's a song of solitude and of like, of the, you know, solitude isn't just when you're by yourself. Solitude is also when, when stuff is, is missing from you. you know? So yeah, fond of, fond of that song.
you've talked about, you know, people, and I absolutely did this when I reached, I emailed you about my dad dying. No, I totally remember. There's something about you. People want to bring their trauma to you. And I think it's because so much of your music is about not even, not even like here's, here's some ways to get through trauma, but just that it's okay to have trauma. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's to, to be able to sit with your stuff, yeah. you know, whatever your damage is, whatever your trauma is, whatever your issues are, to have a space where you can sit with that and come to understand that, that however much of it is, you're still there. It doesn't actually have a knife in its hand. It actually can't assault you. It just feels funky, you know, but, but yeah, that's a, that's what music is for me in a lot of ways. The music I listen to, I think about during that same period, I was listening to Nothing Is Beyond You by uh, Rich Mullins in the version by Amy Grant. And, uh, you know, that song was not written for people to, to suffer with, but it was that for me, you know, it was like, it was, it was a way of situating myself in the vastness of the, the universe. And, and yeah, it's, you know, there, there's a, a more, you know, a simpler way of looking at it, which is like, you can talk a lot about the nature of your experiences with music, but music is sacred. It really is. It's like when, when you've gone that place with something, you know, whether it's Amy Grant or Katie Tunstall or Christine Fellows or whoever, you know, nothing you say about it will ever be adequate to what happened when some piece of work helped liberate you from something. You know, it's like, that's, that's, it's indescribable. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, I also, I was like, I, I'm going to be bringing some trauma to unload on you and I apologize no, for no, that. No, 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 no. Look, I say this a lot and I always am wanting to say it in a way that it's hard to, I'm always trying to hit the right tone here. When people want to share their trauma with me, it is an honor. It can be like in the signing line or something, it can be it can be a lot, you know, it's like, I'm not a therapist. That's the thing is there's nothing I can say. Mm-hmm. Like when somebody shares a trauma with, if you share it with somebody whose job it is to do therapy, they know how to shepherd you through that, right? I don't, right? I don't. I make the thing that seems to actually in some way by itself know how to help with that. But I personally, I, I don't know what to say except thanks and it's an honor, you know, but it really is a profound honor, especially because, Music has, how many times has music been the thing for me? Standing, you know, standing at the abyss saying it's not really an abyss. So you can go in there. You can go there because you'll come back. Yeah, we occasionally get, you know, people, often, you know, it's people that are trying, they're in high school and they're trying to come out and Night Vale helped them with that. And I, I try to think about this, that it's like, what I usually respond to them with is I'm just so glad that this could be useful to you yeah. in the way that art, other art has been useful to me. Do you that, know the song to be of use by Bill Callahan? And we talked about this. Uh, no, it's um, I'll look up the lyrics and read it to you. And you will think from the opening lyrics, you'll see why are you reading this one? But, uh, but we'll get there. It's remarkable. It's expressing exactly what we're talking about. Um, most of my fantasies are of making someone else come. Most of my fantasies are of to be of use, to be of some hard, simple, undeniable use, like a spindle, like a candle, like a horseshoe, like a corkscrew, to be of use, to be of use. Most of my fantasies are of making someone else come on a horse over palms laid on the threshold of the coming day, coming day. 
<laughs> I mean, Bill is like Bill is so is is one of the greatest we have ever. Uh, and his, it's actually we were talking about the songs you're with. He had one, I think the my lowest point ever. I was listening to a song by him called um, "Too Many Birds," uh, and I I just couldn't get away from it. Uh, and it was one of those things where it was like it can take you all the way down to the bottom and show you that the bottom is not a place that has to hold you. Yeah. And that other people have gone there and come back. Yeah. That, that, that it, that it's a real place. And like any other place you can breathe there. It's not outer space. You know, it's like, so yeah. Julian Coster is a member of the music tapes and neutral milk hotel. He also creates surreal and beautiful audio fiction, including the podcast, The Orbiting Human Circus of the Air, that takes place in a ballroom at the top of the Eiffel Tower. Julian approached the task of covering the Mountain Goats unlike any other guest on this season. But before we get to that, let's talk about how Julian and John met. We psychically found each other in London at a, at a Hare Krishna cafe. Yeah, it was wild because I was on my honeymoon and uh, and that was during Neutral Milk's like tour that just they just stayed on tour for so long and because uh, I had seen them a little in San Francisco like a week before right and then then I and that was when I was on tour heading down to my wedding and then I got married and then we flew to England like a week and a half later and there was Neutral Milk Hotel at Govinda's in. Um, God, I can't quite remember the name of the neighborhood. It's like a very populated neighborhood. But yeah, I, I always used to seek out the, the Krishna restaurants. But I think, Julian, did we discuss this? Were you on the 94 uh, Neutral Milk Hotel tour that played Cup of J in, in Pomona? Um, I don't remember the Cup of J, but like, I think as we were saying, I don't really remember uh, a lot of stuff from the 90s. Right. So, um, but I do remember finding you in, Lo in London because we, we'd been, yeah, we'd been in California. We'd, we'd been playing at it. There was a Terrastock Festival, which was an amazing festival. And then we, we had flown out to London and we were um, starving and, and we were trying to find vegetarian food in London, which was, this was before I knew that there was, we knew there was a thousand Indian restaurants every 10 feet in London. And, and so we Somebody was like, oh, there's this this Krishna restaurant, um, which we sort of knew the Krishna stuff because they would set up free food on um, college campuses and stuff, which we were all pretty addicted to because they would, you know, they'd give you free food and it was really nice. So we, we went stumbling through London. We were all jet lagged and we found the place and standing like right in front of it was John, whom we just left in San Francisco. So we were all very, very confused. Um, and, and I remember you were incredibly energetic. You were, well, obviously you must've been, you were on your honeymoon. <laughs> so you were, you looked. Well, plus me, me prior to 2003 or so had a really a, a huge amount of adrenaline. Like, you know how a lot of people are really bummed when they start to get a little older and I was very relieved. Oh because, yeah. Because the, the amount of just free energy I had floating around at any given time back in those days was pretty scorching. That's true. It's exactly how I remember you. That's so funny. I remember you being, you were kind of like a squirrel. <laughs> no, exactly. It was, it was an incandescent energy. I mean, the thing is like, I can't complain about it because it totally like, you know, that's what people found entertaining on stage. <laughs> it was like, I would sort of sit there and I looked kind of like the sun, you know, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, it, uh, I was I was a little relieved when a little of that started to ebb because it was a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I hadn't thought about that because I, you know, I haven't really seen you since then, but that's, that was, you were, yeah. And, and I always saw, I feel like every time I saw you, I was either jet lagged or, or I'd just like woken up or something. And I was just like, oh, like I couldn't even keep up. But, the, but, the, and now, so the, here's the interesting thing though, because we've, so we found you in front of this Krishna restaurant, like bouncing off the walls, <laughs> um, even more so with happiness because you were on your honeymoon. And, um, and we were all jet lagged and, and, and just half out of our minds. But then it turns out you were actually a Hare Krishna at that moment. Yeah, I was right? practicing. I wasn't like uh, in, in ISKCON, uh, the, there's these four regulations you're supposed to follow. And I really only ever uh, followed the vegetarianism one. Like you're supposed to chant 16 rounds a day. That takes three or four hours to, to chant 16 rounds of the Maha Mantra on beads. I think I only ever chanted a full 16 rounds a couple times. I chanted every day. But uh, but 16 rounds, I mean, you're supposed to wake up at like 3 or 4 in the morning to get your rounds started, and I couldn't do that back then. If I started up again now, I have a better chance because I sleep a lot less. But uh, but yeah, so these four regs that you're supposed to follow that I didn't follow, but I did keep deities, uh, and I still have them actually, but I don't offer my food to them anymore. Okay, so you were just doing the vegetarian. So we were actually one quarter uh, Hare Krishna at that point, because we were doing the vegetarian thing, so yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it, works that, is, it, it probably just, doesn't. It probably doesn't work that way, though, right? <laughs> well, no. The thing is, so there's a teaching in the religion that says that even the smallest amount of service counts, right? Uh, it's a, it's one of the most gentle teachings. That if you, I mean, one thing I always liked about it that was that you know in in 20th century Christianity or 19th you know revival Christianity, it's all about what you mean, right? It's it's how do you feel in your heart is what counts. But according to uh, Srila Prabhupada, it's not about what you mean, it's about what you do, right? So if you chant Hare Krishna, it's not about whether you're feeling it or not. It's about whether you do it, right? Uh, and, uh, and I always thought that was kind of cool. There was, it's less about your feelings than it is about your actions. So, uh, so yeah, so even eating at a Govinda's, you get a little bit of, of benefit is the teaching. I mean, as I say, I don't really follow it anymore, although I still... Every time I look over at my bookshelves, it's like I have all my ISKCON books from back then. And like, well, I don't really read them anymore, but it would be it would feel funny to get rid of them. <laughs> we were uh, talking a few episodes ago with Craig Finn about the, that approach to religion. That it's, it's the one that makes the most sense to me, having been raised Jewish, that to me, religion is a thing you do. And it, what you think about that thing or believe about that thing is kind of irrelevant. Um, so I have a hard time wrapping my head around a lot of um, faith-based religions, but a religion where it's it's a set of practices and those practices become your life and that life becomes a religion, that, that totally makes sense. I think the older a religion is, the more likely it is to follow that precept, is what I think. I think eventually religion becomes a collection of behaviors and that younger religions, like Christianity, tend to be about your feelings, you know. Uh, and then I think as Christianity Christianity ages and grows— it will become, I think it's like, so the Catholic Church grows out of older traditions, so it immediately goes, look, no one cares how you feel, I care if you pray the rosary and show up at church, right? And so, but the Protestant moment coincides with the Enlightenment and all that kind of stuff where, where man becomes the center of the universe. Catastrophe, of course, for humankind, right? <laughs> so, do, you, but, uh, do you think that's, but, do you think religions but, yeah, become more or less forgiving as they get old? Um, much more. Yeah, I agree. I mean, because they mature, because we know this in miniature, in, in your own life, that as a person, as you grow, you become more forgiving and more able to see other people's side of things and, and, and less likely to say of somebody who messes up, you know, well, you're off my list now. You know, it's like, 
you stop doing that. Whereas when you're younger, you're more likely to go, well, you fucked up and you fucked up for good. I can't be your friend anymore. You know, and as you grow, you stop doing that. And I think religions are, you know, are people too, in a sense, they're just a bigger expression. So it takes longer for them to reach that phase. There's a, uh, there's a nice story by, uh, I think it's by Isaac Denison. I think there's about a, uh, there's an Abbey. Is that how you say that word? A B B E? Is it um, Abbey? I've, I think so. I've only ever seen it written. Yeah. So I okay. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's one, it's one of those things. Well, so he's on a, he's on a ship on a, on a voyage in the, in this, in the middle of the ocean. And there's this island that some of the sailors are getting sort of excited about passing because there are these, there's these three hermits who live on the island, they're brothers, and they've been there apparently forever. Um, the Abbey can't quite make sense of the stories because all the, all the sailors tell these stories that seem impossible about how long they've been there, and the Abbey wants to go see them. And they're kind of religious ascetics. They, they actually just sit on that island and pray, and they seem incredibly old, and he doesn't even understand how they, they eat or anything. And... Uh, the Abbey, but they're praying all wrong. They don't actually know any any proper prayers, and so he sort of teaches them, and he teaches them uh, one of the the kind of main proper prayers that you say, and 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 uh, and he gives them, I think, rosaries, and then he goes off uh, on the ship and he leaves them behind, and about half a day out in the middle of the ocean, suddenly see, they, they see this crazy light approaching the ship and the light gets closer and closer and the Abbey's on the deck. And it's the three brothers and they're running on the water and they get closer and closer and they run up onto the deck of the, the ship and they're out of breath and they grab the Abbey and they say, Abbey, Abbey, you have to come back. We, we tried, but we forgot that prayer you taught us. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the story. You know what's weird, Julian? Is that's a good story. I, I think I, it's probably earlier in this season, um, since we're recording out of order, I'm not sure exactly where, but I told a, a Jewish story that is very similar to that, where, where it's a rabbi, except for in that one, it's uh, he, he, the rabbi tries to teach someone how to pray, and uh, later he finds out that God considers this person's prayers the, the most valuable prayers in the world, and he goes back to find out how the person has been praying. And the, the person explains that they immediately forgot the prayers, but they'd just been saying the alphabet, assuming that God will figure out how to put it into the correct order. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. And now I must, I have to share my homily joke, the one that I remember a priest telling way back when that I'm, I'm very fond of because I remember when I first heard it, I was like a teenager and I thought, oh, that's corny, man. That's really corny as hell. And then as I grow, I remember it, I go, no, that's actually a really good story. That's like really, it's not as funny. Like it gets, it gets nervous laughter from the congregation. You know, as a joke, it's not a great joke, but as it's, as a story about God, it's totally excellent. So here it is. Um, this is a legendary one. You probably heard it before. Um, the town is going to flood, right? The, the rain is coming and the river is rising. And, uh, and the, uh, the mayor goes on TV and the radio and says, hey, um, uh, it's going to flood. Everybody needs to evacuate the town. And uh, most everybody starts to evacuate, but a very pious man in town uh, says, you know, I'm going to stay here. I trust God to rescue me. 
and uh, the water comes and it begins to rise and uh, a rescue team comes by in a, mo- in a boat to the house you know and, and says hey we know you're still in there come out come out and save yourself and the guy says no i'm trusting in god god will save me and, well okay and the, the boat goes away and the water rises and the guy gets up on his roof and he's sitting there and a helicopter comes by and they say down through a megaphone hey you get you have to evacuate you're going to drown and the guy says my i put my faith in god uh, i don't need a helicopter or anybody and so the helicopter leaves, and the waters rise, and the man drowns. And um, at the at the pearly gates, he, he's let in, and he says, "Look, I I demand an audience with God. God has betrayed and failed me." And they say, "Okay, well, God's right over there." And uh, and he goes up, and he says, "Lord, I put my faith in you, and you did not rescue me. You know, I, I remained faithful to the very end, and you let me die." And God says, "You know, I sent you the mayor. I sent you a motorboat. I sent you a helicopter." <laughs> I mean, I think I always think that's a very profound one because it is actually true that everybody looks for God to speak from the burning bush, but actually God is the guy you run into who t- gives you good advice. You know? Yeah. Do you guys know the flip side of 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 John's story, the one about the guy looking for the parking space? No. All right. So this guy is is uh, driving. He's been driving in New York City, uh, and looking for a parking space for on the Upper West Side for like. And it's been three hours, and he's just beside himself. He's going to miss what he's what he's there to see. He was there to see. A, he had theater tickets. And he just says, God, if you give me a parking place, I will stop smoking. I will never look at another woman again other than my wife. I will start eating properly, and I will pray and, and go to church every Sunday. Oh, no, I see one. Never mind. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, I was made for church jokes. I love these jokes. These are my favorites. <laughs> uh, so, Julian, you know, in the in the earlier part of this episode, um, the part uh, that you weren't around for, uh, we were talking about how music becomes once it's written and it's out there, it it kind of uh, the the musician no longer has the, the quite control over it, and it becomes something that belongs to each person that listened to it. And for instance, this song. Um, even though nothing in the lyrics is really about this, it became very much a song about my father's death. Um, and your cover is, is I think, very much an illustration of this because it's, I think, about as far from um, a straightforward cover as we have in this season. Um, and it, it came, the, the, the process of, of uh, arranging it this way came to you through a dream, right? Yeah, it, it, it came from a dream. It was a dream. Um, I should preface this by saying that I'm incredibly conscious of music and dreams. I, I often wake myself up if I hear music in a dream because I, I, I try to go record it, sing it into a tape recorder or something. But so I, I was having this dream, and I also remember these dreams really well because I do that. Uh, and in the dream, I was in a city, uh, but it wasn't New York City where I live. It was, it was, and I was holding, um, I had a, a bag, a plastic bag full of full of water with a goldfish in it, like like you get when you're a little kid. I actually got one um, when I was at school. I think like in first grade or kindergarten or something. It it was definitely this feeling of uh, when I was a child. I, I remember, and it was very much the same in the dream. It was this kind of precious feeling because it was you know it was a, it was maybe a small fishbowl's amount of water, but it again it was just like in a plastic bag that was like tied off at the top or something, and and there's this little fish swimming around in it, and I'm holding its entire universe in my hands. And um, I had to walk home um, when I was a kid. And in this dream, I was walking, like I said, in some city. And 
And so I was kind of holding it up in front of my face and I'm watching the fish, which is sort of like watching the, the big fish swim around the city. You know, it was sort of, it's sort of amplified. And, you know, people are banging into each other in cities and there's a lot of walking and a lot of cars. And so that part of the dream was very scary because I was essentially just trying to protect the fish. But then I was at a party, which is, I don't know how that happened, but that's how, you know, dreams are. And it was this cocktail party and everybody was incredibly well-dressed and uh, it was very fancy. And I didn't have the fish anymore, but I remembered the fish. Um, and also parties are really scary for me uh, because I've, I'm not great, so I'm terrible socially, especially at parties, that kind of a social situation. And, and, it, and this was full of incredibly fancy people. But the thing was that I'd realized that I didn't have the goldfish because I'd put it down on this bed. It was in this bed where people were throwing their jackets and I suddenly realized like someone could throw their jacket on top of it and, and, and uh, hurt the fish and I was so I was feeling incredibly anxious but for some reason I couldn't go back to the bedroom or I didn't know where the bedroom was I couldn't find it but this song was playing meanwhile and everybody was really into this music and it was this this kind of very strange spacey crazy music and I it, it actually started calming me down listening to it and comforting me um, and also just interesting me and I think it, around that time was when it sort of kicked in the music alarm and my brain went off I was like music dream you're dreaming and so I woke up and I went and I sang it um, into my cassette recorder. And then I think it wasn't until the next day that I was listening to it. And I remembered it. I remembered, you know, because it was really distinct. It was crazy. It was a crazy record um, and like an old record. And I suddenly listened to the melody and I was like, oh, my God, it's John's song. It's that song. Uh, and <laughs> and I yeah. And so I just the cover was done, basically. Like I knew that was it was like, OK, that's what I have to do is just recreate that, but it was already done. Can I say, if there was a podcast called Julian's Dreams, I would listen to it. <laughs> I, would, I would listen to it every week. I would be a subscriber, and I would, I would, I would support your Patreon. Oh, thank you. I have good news. Um, there's a podcast called Orbiting Human Circus. Uh, you should give it a listen. It's, I think, as close to that as it exists. probably pretty cute. Um, we better get a Patreon then. <laughs> There's something about that, you know, about looking at a thing and going, let my mind approach this before my before my conscious mind gets at it, you know, and, and, and the something about when your cover resolves into the melody was just so, you know, it, it's a way of hearing. Because I think, you know, if you ever listen to music while you're going to sleep, the last thing you hear before you drift off is kind of the truest encounter with the music in some ways, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thinking about stories or music uh, at that moment when you're almost asleep, that's, yeah, that's that's really, really, really magical. I love, I, have you ever begun to realize that you're beginning to see, to hallucinate or that you're beginning to dream? I mean, in a funny, dreaming and hallucination are yeah, essentially oh, yeah. the same thing. And it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful to be conscious that it's happening and it's okay and, 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 and you're just falling into it, and that's that's exactly what you want to do. It's, a, it's such a nice moment. Yeah, it's very intense when that happens with dreams, where you go, oh, oh, I'm 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 getting to be present for a little of this before conscious me slips away. It's really incredible. Thank you.
You can buy it wherever digital music is sold. The money from that track goes directly to both the artist and this show, and we really appreciate it. The full album of every cover from this season is available for digital and vinyl pre-order in the Merge Record Store. The special release will be two LPs, one pink and one blue. Link in the show notes. Head over to IOnlyListenToTheMountainGoats.com to see the logo shirt, plus the logo tote, and of course the I Only Listen To podcasts about the Mountain Goat shirt, available nowhere else. Check out the newest album from the Mountain Goats, Goths, which is out now. John Darnielle also writes novels like Universal Harvester, a book that the LA Times called nearly impossible to stop reading. Over on the Welcome to Night Vale podcast, we just started a new three-part story that is one of my favorite things I've written. It's basically a standalone, so go ahead and check it out. It starts at episode 121. I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats is a production of Night Vale Presents with Merge Records. It is produced by Christy Gressman, editing by Grant Stewart, mixing by Vincent Cascione. All music courtesy of the Mountain Goats and Merge Records. Thank you to Christina Rents, Ryan Madison, the Darnell family for letting me intrude on their lives, Julian Coster, the staff of Night Vale Presents, and Christy Gressman. Hello from the complete other side of the world, Christy. Check out Night Vale Presents for more information about this show and all of our other shows, like Welcome to Night Vale, a scripted fiction podcast about a small desert town where every conspiracy theory is true. We've been telling stories about this little community for almost six years now. We just bopped over the 200 million download mark last year, and I invite you to jump in and meet the citizens of our town. We have a helpful starter's guide on our website with some suggestions of episodes to try. Come find out why people love these weird stories. And remember, the bottom is not a place that has to hold you. Thanks for listening, and hail Satan.